Baseball is back, and so is MLB.tv. Watch every out-of-market, regular season game on your favorite streaming devices. Anywhere, anytime, all season long. Follow the action live or on demand. Track four games at once with multi-view mode. And catch up with in-game highlights. Plus, original programs, minor league broadcasts, and local pre- and post-game shows. Go to MLB.tv to start your free trial today. Blackout and other restrictions apply. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission. In 1919, he hit 29 home runs and was sold to the New York Yankees. A three-run home run for Buckington. The Yankees now lead it by a score of 3-2. Bill Lee is now going over to a couple of the Yankees, and there they go again. Tech and A-Rod going at it. Roberts is going. Posada's throw. Roberts safe. And what can I say? Just dip my heart and, and call the Yankees my daddy. Welcome to Fanbase, a deep dive into the greatest rivalry in sports, episode 69. We're actually going all the way to the West Coast for this one. John Senecal along with Brian Shackman here. Uh, we're joined by Joan Ryan. And if you don't know the name... Maybe it's because, you know, the New York Boston East Coast bias. I don't know, but she's an award-winning journalist, writer, and now works hand-in-hand with the San Francisco Giants and a whole bunch of different things. And I'm I'm holding her book, uh, which is fantastic. And I guess was a bit of a labor of love. Took like a decade to write Intangibles, Unlocking the Science and Soul of Team Chemistry. One of her few books she's written. Yeah, a couple and several Associated Press Awards to boot, which is more – I mean, you have a bunch of Emmys, John, but I mean, I don't have a whole lot of hardware, so I can't speak to it. Joan, how are you? I'm great. I'm great. How are you guys? We're good. I mean, I guess, well, first of all, I was this, this, a woman by the name of Patrice Bryan. I haven't said this to you, John. I'll just throw it out there. I went to Amherst College, graduated in class of 94. And Patrice is an African-American woman who played in the soccer team, just a huge personality. And through Facebook, like we were never buddy buddies, but we always ran in the same circles. And then through Facebook, um, you sort of get to you sometimes know people better than when you yep. when you were with them on a day-to-day basis. And I still don't know Patrice that well, but I was sort of trying to get new voices, you know, both on my radio show and this podcast. And she always says interesting things, and she, she's a huge San Francisco Giants fan. So we just connected on a bunch of issues. She's, we've talked about racial issues, and she's like, you got to talk to Joan Ryan. I was like, okay. And so I, what I want to know, Joan, is how – I mean, I don't even know what Patrice does for a living. I mean, like, how did you get in touch with <laughs> Patrice Bryant? She is friends with my son. Okay. Um, and my son um, has a, a brain injury. I mean, he's, he's very high functioning, but Patrice would look out for him because he'd always go out to, she lives in this town called Fairfax, which is like, you know, the last hippie holdout. <laughs> She's a hippie. There's no doubt oh, about yeah, that. Yeah, totally. And my son, you know, just really thrives in that kind of environment. And so Patrice really looks out for him. Um, you know, sometimes he kind of gets stuck in the town that she's in overnight, and she'll take him in. She she always holds um, extra uh, medication for him because he has seizures, you know, from his brain injury. You know, she just really, really looks out for him. So um, I'm very appreciative for having met Patrice. That's really cool. The other thing I want to start off with, you you're born in the Bronx, right, John? You said when... Yeah, yeah. She's West Coast now for the last 30-something years, but you're born in the Bronx, so we got to ask the big question is, are you a Yankees fan? Oh, I was. I'm a Giants fan now, <laughs> but I was growing up. And, I, you know, I'm one of six kids, and my both my parents were born and raised in the Bronx, and I mean, my dad is just was super, super Yankees fan to the point where, well, so when I moved out to San Francisco, 
writing a column um, and covering all the all the teams. And my husband, you know, loves the horses, you know, loves the races. So we go out to the racetrack here in the Bay Area. And back in the day, Joe DiMaggio was a regular there. Hmm. And so when my father came out to visit, my parents would come out to visit, um, I took him out to the racetrack. And, you know, we know the people out there. And so he got to meet Joe D. And we still have a, my father has since passed, but we have a photo of him um, with Joe DiMaggio. And I brought it back to the racetrack and had um, DiMaggio sign it. That's interesting so, because I thought you were going to say George Steinbrenner, not Joe DiMaggio, because I know Steinbrenner owns racehorses in Florida. So does. I thought for sure yeah. you were going to say the boss there. But so that's actually really cool that Joe. Are you D- kidding me, Joe DiMaggio? Uh, that's yeah. insane. No, do you have memories of 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 going to Yankee Stadium? No, okay. you know we went once because we moved to New Jersey. I mean, I was probably three. We moved to New Jersey. My grandparents still lived in the Bronx, so we go back in there all the time but you know six kids my father you know made no money right so we went once but it was on the television and it certainly was the background music of the summer with it on the radio while we were outside you know i want to talk so much about the lockout and and what you do with the giants now but i to me like the most important thing and we don't have a a a ton of time with you you have a busy schedule is you know, women in sports, and it's so much different in 2022 than it was in, you know, 1992 or what have you. And I'm just mm-hmm. curious about, and now you sort of consult the Giants, but and I want to get into that more. Like, how hard was it for you when you started? Or maybe it wasn't hard at all. And, and how, how, in your view, has it changed? Well, it's changed a ton. <laughs> you know, I, I was in sports, gosh, 19... 19- I don't know how old you guys are. Maybe this is even before you were born. But um, I'm, I'm 50, and John's in his late 47. 40s. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, 1983, I started in sports, and you know, and I never really set out to be a sports writer. It's just I was working at the Orlando Sentinel on the news side, but thought and, and editing, not even writing. And I thought, well, you know, I really need to learn how to uh, really need some experience in writing. I'm never going to really move up in journalism. So, you know, I mentioned it, you know, sort of into the air and the editor of the paper heard there was this young woman who wanted to be in sports and unbeknownst to me, I mean, I really hadn't looked into it, but there had never been a woman in the Orlando Sentinel sports department at that point, which is, you know, not unusual. And so I end up in there and long story short, you know, I start writing and doing this and that and find myself at um, Orlando Sentinel one one night and uh, covering the Orlando Renegades versus the Birmingham Stallions. Oh, USFL? USFL. (laughs) (laughs) There were no professional sports at Orlando at the time. And I have to do, you know, I'm the cub reporter then, and I have to obviously cover the visiting team, sidebar on the visiting team. And so I get in the elevator at the end of the game, take the elevator down to the locker room, and, you know, I happened to be the first one down there. Not that there was a big crowd of me right. trying to get into the Birmingham Giants club locker room. I go in, and it's uh, kind of mayhem in a, in a certain way because, you know, you walk into, you know, you guys have been in, in locker rooms, I'm sure, and you walk in <laughs> to the path, and 
all of these old locker rooms set up the same way. On one side are the lockers, and on the other side is the uh, showers and the, you know, the bathroom. Right. And the door, you're walking right into that, you know, migration of wildebeest, you know. <laughs> and I walk in, and there's a beat where I'm hearing all the din in there, and then it goes silent. And they're all just looking at me, and then it erupts. And it was like they had never seen a woman before, much less one in their locker room. And I mean, it was like crazy. And I'm standing there, and the only person I needed to talk to was Joe Cribb because he had broken his hand, and he was an NFL, former NFL player. So, you know, I'm doing my sidebar on Joe Cribb. So I'm standing there like an idiot, you know, where's Joe Cribb's locker? You know, I just kept asking that over and over. And while I'm standing there, I feel something on my leg. And I moving along my skin, I was in a skirt up toward the hem of my skirt. And I look down, and there's a big football player uh, sitting on a bench facing his lockers. You know, the beginning of the bench was right near where I was standing. And he's using this long-handled razor to cut off all of the tape. And he was running the handle of the razor up my uh, leg. And I, I just lost it. Wait, he no. was do- was he doing that? On, I'm trying. Was he doing that on purpose? To- oh yeah. Oh my gosh. Oh yeah. And so I, I I just lost it, and I turned around to leave the locker room, and standing in the doorway were two men in the you know red, um, uh, red V-neck sweaters that all the coaches were wearing down on the field, and I'm thinking, oh my god, you know these guys are sitting there and. And one of them turned out to be the owner of the team who just thought this was the most entertaining thing he'd ever seen. And I, I walk out, find the PR guy, and said, you know, you got to bring Joe Cribbs out. He does bring Joe Cribbs out. I talk to him briefly and go up, and I'm on deadline, so I write my story. And, and so I'm, uh, you know, I'm thinking about this, and I'm saying, uh, and in my head, here's what went through. Like, you know? I never set out to be a sports writer. Those guys really don't want me to be a sports writer. And that's when I decided I really wanted to be a sports writer. <laughs> so, so you weren't, you weren't sca- like, it didn't scare you more. It made you more determined. I mean, because I, oh, I would imagine that was a yeah. pretty frightening situation for you. Yeah, it was. And it just made me furious. Now, is it that- made me so furious. This, now, this is happening right when you first start out at the Orlando Sentinel, and not long after that, you know, you leave and move to San Francisco. Now, is that is that kind of a deciding factor? I, I mean, it sounds no. like it sounds like this makes you a better person in the long run right away, but it just doesn't yeah. scare you out of town, I guess, is what I'm saying. Oh, no, 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 no. So it was the editor who originally had put me in the sports department who became the um, editor of the San Francisco Examiner. And so he hired, he brought me and three other people from the Orlando Sentinel, you know, hired us to go with him. And that's how I ended up in San Francisco. Now, now do you experience anything else like this again? I could imagine that you would. I mean, it just nothing doesn't Nothing seem- like that. Oh, no, nothing like that. And also now I was sealed for it. Right. You know, I wasn't then. So, yeah, I mean, there was stuff happening, um, you know, constantly. Like sometimes you would get, especially in the visiting clubhouses, like your own clubhouse. Like when I went into the age of the Giants or the 49ers or the Warriors, you know, no problem. Because you go there enough that they say, okay, you know, she's legit. She's fine. You know, you build 
respect. You also have to see these people day after day. You know, it's not exactly, exactly. you don't, it's kind of a major line you are crossing there. Yeah. Yeah, well, that yeah, is, exactly. I, I mean, that is, uh, you know, I always have such, it always blows me away. And I always think of like stuff like the big short when, you know, everyone tells you you're stupid for believing a certain thing. And then you're like, oh, everyone's telling me I'm wrong. I'm the kind of guy I'd be like, okay, maybe I'm wrong. And for someone to say, oh, well, may, I believe in what I'm doing and what I'm saying, I'm still yeah. going to go this way. For you to continue with that, I think is, is, is impressive. I mean, I can't imagine the, the sort of brow sweat that it instantly engendered in, in, in your body. I mean, I just, I mean, that's, a, that's an incredible, yeah. incredible story. Yeah, no, it was pretty bad, but you know, when I joke, you know, that I built an entire, entire career on bitterness and resentment, <laughs> but it like, totally, well, you know, I'm from the Bronx, right? Nobody's going to push you around. And that's how I grew up, you know, in my family, a very gritty family. And you just like, no, you know, screw you. I'm, I'm going to win. And of course you do. You know, that's the thing is no matter what would happen in a locker room. Um, I mean, just crazy stuff and, you know, gross stuff. And I would be there and it's like, you know what? Long after your career is over, I'm still going to be here. I am going to outlast you because that's the way this thing works. The, the players come and go right. and the media days we're the ones who are really entrenched and are these dudes like naked in front of you like i mean is oh yeah oh my god yeah you know flaunting naked yeah and it's like you know have you heard this thing about <laughs> called a towel <laughs> you know it's really easy to put on and you can keep it on well, and so that's what you know something that's really satisfying to me now being on the inside of the giants and um you know, of course, San Francisco, you know, things are a lot better in San Francisco, even in the 80s. It was, I mean, yeah. And there were always other women in San Francisco, too. Yeah. So it's not I like I was a... the only female columnist, but there were, you know, you could count on at least one other woman. Well, usually this... was going to be there. Well, you know, I, I want to segue. I mean, I could talk about this a, a long time, but I, you know, we only have so much time with you, and we want to get to a bunch of other things. But what I would say is that because of whether it's the money or the way you know the social media era ha- has developed, there, there's there's more of a distance between journalist and player. There's not, you know, you can't develop maybe that relationship today with you know somebody. I don't know. Was a Krukow was the pitcher. Um, Kruko, yeah, yeah Kruko, and, and that maybe that stuff doesn't really happen as much anymore. And and now that you're sort of consulting these these young men, most of them much much younger. I mean, do you do they not, they never want to talk to the media? Do they, they they do as as little as possible? I mean, you know, because to me, no, it, no, it's, it's about the same as it as it was. I mean, it doesn't feel that way is. here in New York and Boston. It it seems like there's a real distance that they don't care. And they definitely don't want talk to talk. To media. Yeah. So. Yeah. But I saw that, you know, even in the 80s, frankly, you know, and it wasn't like, like with Kruko, I became very good friends with Kruko, um, you know, over the course of my career, you know, and late, my, you know, all of that. Yeah, we weren't friends by any chance. And now, you know, by any stretch. But now we are. Um, because things change when they leave the clubhouse, <laughs> you know, and I always say this and you guys have seen it, you know, there is nothing, um, there is no creature on the face of the earth friendlier than a retired. I know, star. I know, 
And that's when the guys, when they're jerks in their 20s, it, it makes me so mad because I'm going to be like, you're going to be crawling over people to talk to certain people in five years. I mean, that, that's so frustrating. It's so true. It's really, it, it's really funny. Um, yeah, but um, oh, I've lost my train of thought here, guys. Joan, you you talked about when we were just talking about you know player relationship with the media and you know oh, you yeah. were you were front row and center for 15 years of one of the more polarizing figures in professional sports and that's Barry Bonds. Um, yeah. I have a couple questions regarding him. Um, you know, in your your latest book, you know, Intangibles Unlocking the Team Chemistry book. Um, I'm wondering your take on Barry Bonds and the whole team chemistry. Now that they had a great team in 2000, 2002. And, you know, yeah. for, looking from the outside, I would say, you know, maybe he might be the reason why they don't get over the hump. Um, I'd love to hear your take on that, and then I'll get to the uh, the Belco thing after that. Yeah, well, I mean, that's what I assumed. So when I was writing my book, you know, I found this, you know, there are players who were super carriers of chemistry, like Johnny Gomes, who I write a whole chapter about in the book. And then, I, well, if they are super carriers, there must be super disruptors. And, boy, as you say... You know, I was around what I thought was the biggest disruptor in baseball. So I set out to write about Barry Bonds and how, and I thought the same thing, you know, like, okay, they had one really good year in 2002 and, um, you know, and it has to be about Barry Bonds. Because, of course, after a few years after he left, they started winning all those World Series. So I head out with that um, premise. And, you know, of course, Barry Bonds won't talk to me, blah, 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 blah. So I'm talking to all of his teammates and everybody around him. And his teammates say he wasn't a disruptor because he was, you know, he was so extraordinary and had, you know, such an odd personality that he was on this island of misfit toys all by himself. And the rest of the team had their chemistry. And I looked back at their stats. They were good until until Barry's last three years, maybe four years. They were a great team, a really great team. But when you think about it, you know, if you don't win the division, um, I mean, you can win the division and then you're out because there were no playoff teams. So if you didn't win the division, now you still get into the playoffs. Right. But in there, it was over. You were done. There were, you know, no step forward on that. But they won a lot of games with Barry Bonds. And then you add Jeff Kent, who, you know, in Bleacher Report. Another nice uh, guy. <laughs> oh, my gosh, you know. We, there were two top ten worst teammates of all time, according to Bleacher Report, on the same team. And you think, man, this has got to just collapse. And yet, one thing I found out, you know, where I kind of decided was that there's different kinds of chemistry. So there's the emotional, social chemistry that most humans need, you know, 99% of us need. And then there's that, what I call task chemistry. So, you know, Bonds and Kent are totally in, ignoring each other until they're, you know, unless they're having a fist fight in the, in the dugout. <laughs> but on the field, those guys were totally committed to each other, totally committed to preparation, to working hard. And each one of them, when I finally did get to interview each one of them, they each said, there's no one I'd rather have on the field with me than the other one. 
And I thought, that's really interesting. They did have chemistry. It was just about their work on the field. Then they were no two better. I mean, they would be standing at the top of the uh, top step of the dugout, you know, after having the fist fight, and, and the other guy hit a home run, and the other one's on the top step of the, uh, the dugout shaking his hand. That's crazy. It's really amazing that Barry Bonds, I mean, did what he did, you know, clean or not, but with all that added pressure. I mean, it, almost like you said, he wasn't even a member of his own team in a way, yet he yeah. still performed at such a level. Well, yeah, in baseball, you can be super selfish and still be a good teammate because the way the game is designed, right? I mean, if you exactly. just focus on hitting and catching, right. you can actually be a jerk and be a bad teammate and people can still support you. But, I would, but the uh, only way you can be a bad teammate, and he, and he really wasn't a bad teammate only because he didn't have a lot of impact in there, but it, it's that, um, oh my God, I haven't had my coffee yet. Um, <laughs> it's... it's Oh my god! I completely lost my thought. Was it a bad teammate? God, I'm sorry, but the one way to be a bad yet. teammate? No, it's fine. We got tons of questions to pick up on. You want to ask your Balco question? Yeah, I mean, as far as it's these players that have been embroiled in this steroid or PED controversy. I mean, it seems like obviously all of them. I mean, Mark McGuire has kind of kept his name in baseball a little bit, but for the most part, they've all been basically shunned, starting with Jose Canseco. Um, <laughs> The, and, you know, the Giants, in their own admission, have kind of just severed ties with Barry Bonds, too. And we have talked about this in the podcast before, how, you know, Major League Baseball basically let all this happen in front of their faces. And now they've shunned all these players, yet they made all this money and all this publicity off of it. I would love to hear your take on, you know, A, do you feel like these players deserve to be in the Hall of Fame or recognized for their achievements? And B, do you feel like MLB is kind of just, and the teams have done them just dirty? Do they deserve to be treated better? I'm with you 100% on that, 100%. Especially after spending so much time with Barry Bonds for my book and sort of seeing that this was the culture of the time. It, that you can't then, MLB, you know, the A's, frankly, um, you know, and the teams that were, you know, even before Barry Bonds, were, you know, the hotbeds for using steroids. You know, so you, you can't now all of a sudden say, yeah, no, they can't be part of us anymore. Sorry. Yeah. And, and also you can't deny that in the steroid era, there were certain people who still stood out. You know, there were a lot of guys taking steroids, a lot of guys taking steroids who didn't achieve what Barry Bonds achieved, you know, or Mark McGuire achieved. There were, there were certain people that, you know, just excelled in a way that nobody else who was taking steroids. So you have to look at their stats and say, okay, these people were extraordinary baseball players, and especially Barry Bonds. I mean, how can you have a Hall of Fame and not have Barry Bonds in it? And part of it, you know, obviously a huge part of it is the steroids, but a part of it is that, you know, he was awful to deal with. He was terrible in the clubhouse. Um, and, and the media, they don't, they don't forget it. And I'm not saying that they base it on that, but I'm saying that there's never going to be any goodwill toward Barry Bonds. You know, he made his bed and he's going to sleep in it and we're not going to help him out of it. So yeah. I'm with you guys. I mean, I do. Well, you're just with John. I'm not totally on board with it, but I, I, okay. I do understand it. I mean, I, we had Earl Snyder on 
uh, earlier this week who was, he was a, a perfect candidate he for was, steroids. He was a 4A player who was a late bloomer, a 30-something round draft pick who stayed clean and never got to drop anchor in the bigs. And I feel bad for him. Maybe he should have done it, but you know he wouldn't let himself do it. And yeah. You know, but I I agree. Like Clemens and Bonds, they were great players anyway. And even McGuire, I mean, that those early years with Ken Seiko in Oakland were magical. So I mean, I, I I get it. I just I have a tough time with it because as someone who was an average athlete, who who you know, I I just feel like people should earn it all. But I mean, people have been cheating. You know, you know, Earl was telling us about all the greenies and stuff like that. I mean, people have yeah. been doing this stuff forever. So I mean, I still haven't figured out a thesis statement on how I feel about right. it. Right. No, and it's true. And you know, my good friend Ann Tillian, who's a sports columnist at the San Francisco Chronicle, um, you know, I respect her stance, which is she's going by what the Hall of Fame people say is the criteria in which to get into the Hall of Fame. And three of those, I think there's seven criteria, three of them have to do with character. <laughs> so she said, look, if the Hall of Fame changes its criteria to getting into the Hall of Fame, I have no problem, but the Hall of Fame asks the media to provide this service for them, which is to vote for who belongs in the Hall of Fame, and she says, I'm following those directions. I respect that 100%. All right, we're talking with Joan Ryan here on Fan Base, a deep dive into the greatest rivalry in sports. We wish we had more time um, because this is an, uh, honestly a wonderful conversation, and I, th- I think we, we need to pivot a little bit toward uh, the Giants, and you know, I think for us – you know, being I'm a Red Sox guy, John is a Yankee guy, and you obviously have done a deep dive into team chemistry. We've already touched on it, but I'm just curious that the Giants teams, and I have my brother-in-law's, he's from Northern California, huge Giants fan. Based like what I try to look at with that team is like, how did they win those World Series when they 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 just didn't spend as much money? They had a bunch of guys that honestly, you know, East Coast bias aside, like I just hadn't really heard much of until they became stars. You, you know, your Brandon Belts and Buster Posey. There's yeah. your answer. I mean, all those guys. Like, yeah, what was it? Was is he the one that? I mean, because to me, like, you take Brady out of the Patriots, I don't care about Belichick. Like, Belichick will never do what he did. You know, they needed each other. They did but, have great pitching but, though, too. But, but if I'm a Belichick or Brady guy, I'm a Brady guy. Like, so I mean, right. is it one person like a Posey who makes that work, or just talk us? No. About, okay, what is it? No. Well, and, and let's look at 2010, the first World Series, right? I mean, that team, a lot of the older veterans who were kind of, had gotten kind of crotchety and cranky, and, you know, so they were gone. And you had this, you know, young group, you know, the Buster Poseys and, you know, some of the others. Felton Crawford weren't up then. But it was still a young Tim Lincecum, Matt Kane, all those guys. Well, what was so strange, and it took me a long time to even accept that this was true, so do you guys know much about Aubrey Huff? Yeah. Well, I know about his okay. politics. I mean, yeah. 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 And, and he he's, was a terrible teammate. You know, selfish, last one to the ballpark, first one to leave, only cared about his own statistics. And, you know, shockingly, never was on a winning team until he got to the Giants. So he ends up at the Giants because the, because the Giants uh, needed another bat. And so they signed him to a one-year deal. It comes with all he comes with all kinds of baggage. Well, these young guys have no idea about the baggage Aubrey Huff has. They have no idea he was a terrible teammate. He walks into that clubhouse in spring training, and I remember standing there watching Aubrey Huff come in, and and he's in the he's in the clubhouse and thinking. And I know this because I talked to him later. You know, he's thinking. You know, 
God, you know, these guys are going to hate me. You know, this is going to be a disaster. But he's got his Huff Daddy, which is his alter ego. He's got his Huff Daddy swag, you know, swagger on. Uh, you know, just walking into the clubhouse like he owns it. And Tim Lincecum comes up to him. Hey, hey God, we're happy you're going to be here. Matt Cain. All these guys come and they accept him. They don't know what he is. They accept him for who he is. And, in fact, they really, really like him because he's got that charisma. He's got, you know, the ultimate clubhouse humor, you know, which is like a 10-year-old on a playground. <laughs> but he... He was totally accepted. So he and they, he was totally trusted. So when you trust somebody completely, guess what happens? They become trustworthy. They live up to that. And so against all odds, Aubrey Huff in that accepting culture. His heart grew he two came. sizes too big, <laughs> just like the Grinch. But look at the season he had. I just looked at the numbers. Oh, and he was the leader. Because when I went back to say, like, okay, why did this 2000 team do so well? I'm like, oh, I wonder if it's Buster Posey, whatever. And everybody said, oh, yeah, it was Huffy. It was Huffy. He was the leader. And I kept saying, no, that cannot be true. <laughs> I couldn't stand Aubrey Huff. But it was true that a culture can be so strong huh. that it changes the people in it. And that was the beginning of the Giants' run. They had the best culture in there about trusting each other, caring about each other. It was remarkable to be a part of. It, it was a gift for me to see that happen behind the scenes. And that continued right through the run, the three World Series yes. over five years? Even with different people. And that's how strong that culture was. You know, Bruce Bochy was a part of it for sure. Um, but it was, it was Buster and Lincecum and all those guys bringing themselves to it and it wasn't like there was one, okay, we're all like this. It was such a diverse group of guys that just really cared about each other, and that matters. Well, I mean, it's, you know, and it's funny because, and I do, you might disagree, but I do, I mean, I, one of my best friends grew up in Arizona, and he, he had a family uh, place in Dana Point, California. He's big. His dad was a Dodger fan, and they, of course, had the D-backs, and we fight back and forth. And when they, the, the sports center would lead with X when it mattered, and it was always East Coast. And maybe you don't see it, but, I mean, I, I clearly feel like there is sort of a, a, a – there is an East Coast bias, or at least there was when it mattered to me. So just put in perspective, and we got it. We got it. I know we got to go, but Buster Posey, I mean, is he a Hall of Famer? Oh, first ballot. Really? Yeah, I know. I know people say that, you know, but if you do look at his numbers and how, what he um, contributed to the Giants and how well he, it, you know, it's not just all about, you know, how do you, you know, how many home runs are you hitting? How he managed his pitchers, he made those guys, and pitching, obviously, you know, you get to the World Series, you know, it's all about pitching. He managed those pitchers so brilliantly connected, you know, so deeply with them. They just put their trust in, in Buster Posey. And of course I am a hundred percent biased. I am so biased because I got to see him every day. And you're like, man, that guy's extraordinary. He's just extraordinary. Joan, before we let you go, I have one more question. It's all, all about catching. Um, your other book, Molina, the story about a father who raised an unlikely baseball dynasty. Um, I'm interested to hear about 
they're they're from Puerto Rico, and we there was a whole ton of in the, in the CBA about international draft, and that was a huge talking point. Then it just disappeared about as fast as COVID did in this country. It feels like, and I'm interested to hear your take about how the international draft would play into the overall thing. Like, would the Molina brothers kind of be found? I know Benji's story about being found by the Angels is a crazy one. Um, everybody right. knows about Yadier. They you know he's the big star in the family, the younger one, but. Does does the international scouting need to be retooled, or is there something that can be done, or is or do you think it's just to be the way it is? You know, I'm not really sure about that. I mean, it does seem, as we know, you know, there's all kinds of you know hijinks and manipulation that go through signing guys and the scouts that sign the guys. You know, it, it, those scouts just have you know incredible power, right? right? Where if it's if, if it's a draft, it does seem I don't want to say more above board, but more transparent. Right. And everybody gets a shot at every player, and you're not just beholden to that one scout. Yeah, it, it seems you. like it seems like the the whole system it could be just ripe with uh, fraud, oh, and it's just. And, and and then the big losers are the players in the grand scheme of things because yeah. they're getting signed for a thousand dollars when they're worth a million dollars. Yeah, it's like they right. in the fifties getting that record contract that you owe them right. four albums before you make a penny. We're talking with Joan Ryan, uh, writer, journalist, consultant, written books, won awards. I mean, what a great conversation we're having here on episode sixty nine a fan base, a deep dive into the greatest rivalry in sports. Brian Chackman, of course, John Seneca with me. Uh, the the person I want to talk about now is. Is uh, and it, it gets a whole chapter in your book. I mean, unlocking the science and soul of team chemistry. The title is Intangibles. Is one of our favorites in our household is Johnny Gomes, <laughs> career two forty seven hitter, uh, and and you have a whole chapter about him. So and obviously he was a huge part of that twenty thirteen Red Sox World Series victory in one particular spot. Uh, what what are your thoughts on Johnny Gomes? So Johnny Gomes was this guy who, uh, you know, was a journeyman player, you know, went from, went from team to team to team and, uh, you know, never, never the best guy, but a pattern emerged on his teams. His teams won. (laughs) It was amazing. You know, Tampa, where else was he? Oakland, then Air. Arizona. Anyway, his team's what? And so you're like, okay, this guy's hitting 212. You know, I think his uh, career average was 242. And yet his teammates saw him as the linchpin of their success when they succeed. And so you're looking at, okay, what is going on here? And really what Johnny Gomes had was total, total selflessness he was the guy that and he was the first one at the ballpark last one to leave but he was the guy that when a when a teammate was in a slump he'd go in the video room and watch an hour hours worth of the guy taking swings at the bat and then go to the guy are you mean for real that he really did that he really did that he was the guy you know like i call the super carrier of chemistry he filled every role because i have this thing in the book of of, you know the archetypes that you have um to have a great team chemistry team and he was all seven of them you know 
And so his teammates totally believed in him, totally believed in him. And so there was a, so they get to the World Series, play in the Cardinals, game four. They're down two games to one. Um, And obviously if they lose game three, it's a pretty steep climb to win the World Series. They got to win. So they, uh, the, 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 the uh, lineup is posted for that day. You know, the big poppies and the Dustin Pedroia's and uh, Jake Peavy's, you know, that, that veteran group, they're all together. They, they get together in the, in the clubhouse and march into um, the manager's, <clears throat> the manager's uh, office. Johnny Gomes wasn't in the lineup. And Johnny Gomes shouldn't be in the lineup. He, I don't know if he had gotten a hit. He certainly hadn't gotten a hit in the World Series, and I think he had gotten one hit in the postseason. And it was a, um, you know, a righty-lefty pitching batter thing. And it wasn't, you know, so he wasn't in left field, right? Because he wasn't, it wasn't the right matchup for him. He's not in left field. So they go into the uh, manager's office and they say, you got to put Johnny Gomes in the lineup. And of course, you know, the manager's looking at him like, what? You know, number one, it's not your job to make the lineup. And it's already out. You know, it's hours before the game. It's out on social media. Everybody knows. You're like, no, I'm not changing it. You know, and look at his stats. Not the guy we want in a game we have to win. And they basically staged a coup, you know, an uprising. They wouldn't leave there until he changed it. That's how much they believe Johnny Gomes mattered when he's on the field. Well, they do change it. And, of course, you know, go out there. Johnny Gomes is in the lineup. And he hits a three-run homer yeah. to put them ahead, and they and they win the game. Now, is that a coincidence? Of course, that's a coincidence. But However, it, but it still ha- it still happened. It's baseball. It happened. They won, and that was the launching pad to that. And I asked Jake Peavy, who ended up coming to the Giants, and and I said, Jake, okay, why does team chemistry matter? It's just you know, amorphous thing, you know, and, and, you know, these guys really believe it. And, and, you know, obviously the book is about the science of it, so we do prove the science of it. But I asked, I asked, I said, you know, Jake, you're on the mound, and if you've ever watched him pitch, you know, he's that stomper and snorter on the mound, and, you know, right. he is just locked in and furious out there. <laughs> and I said, Jake, you're already giving 100%. Right. You know, so what why does it matter about your teammates? You know, like you can generate that for yourself. And he said, when I'm on the mound, my teammates summon a fight in me. I can't willingly summon for myself. Hmm. And that is the line of the book that captures exactly what team chemistry is and how much um, your teammates matter. And Johnny Gomes was that teammate who got them all charged. And that's why they wanted him out on that field in 2013, his teammates. We play better when Johnny Gomes is on the field with us. Love that story. I mean, I remember that three-run home run. I wonder who sat the bench instead. He, that's Yeah, I wonder who he, he knocked out of the lineup. <laughs> oh, well, what happened? Yeah, here's what happened. Uh, they took, I think it was Nava. Yeah. Damn, Nava. Nava was in left. They moved him to right. And Shane Vectorino suddenly had back pain. Oh, the flying Hawaiian. Um, 
Is that what he called the flying horn? Yeah, well, he's really good too. And Daniel Navo <laughs> only back only pain. played re- good for the Red Sox in the, in the spring. That's awesome. What a great story. We still though, even though we added that into the end, we're still having you back. I don't care. Um, <laughs> Joan, have a, have a great one, and uh, we really appreciate the time. Thank you guys a lot. All right, that's it. Episode sixty nine of Fan Base: A Deep Dive into the Greatest Rivalry in Sports. Baseball is back, and so is MLB.tv. Watch every out-of-market, regular season game on your favorite streaming devices. Anywhere, anytime, all season long. Follow the action live or on demand. Track four games at once with multi-view mode. And catch up with in-game highlights. Plus, original programs, minor league broadcasts, and local pre- and post-game shows. Go to MLB.tv to start your free trial today. Blackout and other restrictions apply. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission.